Uh, here now our reading from Joshua chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading to the end of chapter 4. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set up from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivite, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the, of, all the, of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the, of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark was dipped in the brink of the water. Now, The Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. The people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nations had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, for the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they had lodged and laid them down. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. 
For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all the banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And these 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Sea of Reeds, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Our New Testament reading is from Matthew. Uh, This is uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So uh, we are continuing our uh, study of the book of Joshua. And so far, our focus has been on issues of identity. How do we define us? And how do we define them? What are the things that unite us? And already we have found that Joshua is not the simple, straightforward book of triumphal ethnocentrism that we might imagine it to be on the surface. In chapter 1, we have God's chosen people called to be united and obedient, particularly to God's law. We discuss how there is a virtue to unity under God's law because it means that blood or and soil, uh, which were previous markers of identity and still are in many places today, uh, is not as important uh, to the Israelite identity. Uh, there is an outside standard, the Torah. And so what defines Israel is a set of ideas, uh, which Jesus sums up as love of God and love of neighbor. However, just as we were getting on board and comfortable with those ideas of obedience and unity, we saw in chapter 2 that the idea of obedience and us and them is challenged uh, because of this incredible story of a virtuous Canaanite woman who exemplifies the ideal Israelite in contrast to the passive Israelite spies. And so one of the things that we're going to see is very important in Joshua is this idea about boundaries. How do we draw the line between Canaanite and Israelite? 
Uh, how do we define the extent to which we apply the law? And already we have seen boundaries transgressed and the seemingly sharp lines being blurred. We have seen more gray than the black and white we would have expected. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have been allowed on the east side of the Jordan, despite this not being part of the promised land. A covenant has been made with a Canaanite woman who has been promised deliverance from the complete destruction that the Israelites had been commanded to deliver to the Canaanites. And so now, as we come to these chapters, we come to another boundary, a physical boundary, the Jordan River. And so the crossing of this boundary is the subject for a passage today. Uh, the Hebrew word abar, which means crossing over, passing, occurs 17 times in these two chapters. And the repetition of this word lets us know that crossing this boundary is the major point that Joshua is trying to get uh, us to pay attention to. Now, Hebrew, the Hebrew language uh, is very clever. Uh, we all know that words uh, often do more than one thing in Hebrew, and it's kind of one of the geniuses of it. Uh, the interesting thing is that another meaning of the word abar is transgress. Uh, so it's often used in the context of transgressing a rule, and particularly a covenant. Uh, so we can see there's kind of a hint of, uh, you know, in the midst of obedience, we, we come across disobedience here. So the point of all this is that we were returning to this theme of obedience that we established in chapter one. Uh, Israel will cross this boundary, but the way they do so is by being obedient. So remember, I talked about, um, I, I used this analogy with the, um, with the, the, the song Born in the USA, where the, the verse is different from the chorus. Uh, so if we look at chapter one, uh, we have this uh, theme of obedience and unity, and then we have the challenge to that in chapter two. Well, now in chapters three and four, we're going back to the obedience and unity theme. <clears throat> so the chapter wants to go to great lengths to stress that what is accomplished is only done so by obedience. Uh, so for example, if you look in, in verse six, so if you read verse six in chapter three, Joshua says to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. And then the next line is, so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And, and so you notice here there's a pattern. There's a command statement and that's immediately followed by another statement describing the execution of that command. And if you look through this chapter, you're going to find over and over again this command execution pa pattern. Uh, it gets repeated uh, all throughout these chapters over and over again. It, it's actually quite striking. Uh, the point is, uh, of course, that Israel does not enter the land in their own way and in their own time, but only by obedience to the Lord. And so that's one feature of the passage that anybody who writes commentaries or spends any time studying this notices. But there's another characteristic, and you probably actually heard it or, 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 uh, while we were reading this passage. You know, I said it was a long passage, but did you also know, uh, notice something odd about it? Um, it's really disjointed. Uh, it meanders. It's repetitive. It's circular. Uh, it there's lots of interruptions. It starts with one thing, drops it, comes back to it again. It, it repeats itself. It's not quite as tightly written as it could be. I mean, it's just about crossing over from one side of a river to another, right? 
but uh, it's not so straightforward to that. Now, I think there's a good reason for that. We're going to come back to it. I just simply want to point that out right now. Uh, but if we just see what the story is, the passage is trying to communicate, it's pretty simple. The Jordan River is a barrier that must be overcome. And as the text tells us in at least two places, at this time of the year, it was even more of a barrier because it's harvest time and the Jordan River overflows its banks at harvest time. And uh, any of those of you who uh, grew up like me in the 80s uh, playing Oregon Trail uh, knows that crossing rivers is really tough, particularly with large groups of people. It's dangerous, uh, especially when you don't have the option of having a banker in your group and uh, paying for the ferry. But in any event, God miraculously stops the flow of the Jordan River and the Israelites cross into Canaan on dry ground. And, you know, this should sound familiar to us because this has happened before in Exodus at the Sea of Reeds. In both cases, the Israelites cross a watery boundary, and as a result, their identity is transformed. At the Sea of Reeds, the Israelites move from a group of slaves to a free people. And here at the Jordan River, the Israelites are changed from being unsettled nomads to a settled nation. Chapter 4, verse 1, actually introduces a new term to describe the Israelites after they pass over Jordan. They are called a goy, uh, which is a Hebrew word that we translate as nation. They are no longer merely an am or people, but a goy or a nation. So that's a big deal. Um, the crossing is preceded by uh, the priest. And the priests have this really important function. They stand in the center of the Jordan River. It becomes dry, and they do so carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And so if you are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, if you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and know about uh, melting Nazi faces and stuff like that, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a large ornate box that contained the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, of course, were emblematic of the covenant that God had made between himself and Israel. Uh, the Ark was also seen as the center of God's presence. So God was actually like uh, somehow present in the Ark. His spirit was there, his glory, his kabod, as it says in Israel. And therefore, special considerations had to be made at the ark because it was kind of like this nexus point between heaven and earth, between, between Yahweh God and Israel. Um, you know, I often describe this holiness as kind of like you uh, had to take precautions. It was almost like we would, we would talk about like radioactivity. Uh, you uh, had to, there were special procedures that had to be done. Otherwise, you were in danger. And the symbolism that's being communicated here through all this is that God himself is passing into the land of Canaan along with and ahead of the Israelites. Now, at this point, the storyline of this crossing is interrupted as we are told that 12 men are selected from each tribe of Israel. And what's funny about this in, is verse 13 kind of leaves us hanging to its, as to their purpose. Okay, we're told that Joshua is to select them, but then we don't know anything about them uh, until we get to chapter 4, where we learn that the po their point was that they were to take 12 stones from the middle of the river in order to erect a memorial. 
and notice that the 12 separate stones are brought together to form one memorial. Uh, so we have this, uh, you know, idea about, uh, you know, separate becoming united, you know, like e pluribus unum or something like that. Uh, in other words, uh, these are issues of identity. Uh, so uh, by building this memorial, the idea was that future generations of Israelites would have a physical reminder of their history. Just like, you know, I mean, we might go to uh, uh, famous monuments like Gettysburg or something like that. Uh, they, we would know, we would learn something about who we are as a people and where we come from. So, you know, again, this is, this is all about identity. And uh, just like some Christian traditions use catechism to instruct uh, their younger members, parents are to answer their children's questions about this structure. It's a catechismic idea. So it's a very similar. It's just teaching them uh, who they are, what their values are. Now, after this report of this stone memorial, the passage revisits the previous actions. But whereas chapter 3 focused on going into the water, now the Israelites are coming out of the water. First the people, then the priests with the ark, and then we go back again to the stone memorial. And the passage ends at the uh, this place called Gilgal, which uh, is kind of appropriate for this whole narrative because uh, Gilgal in Hebrew means something like circle. Uh, and this is a very circular uh, uh, couple of chapters. So, Let's let's go back to this question then. Uh, what do we do with all this back and forth and, and repetition? Now, uh, of course, it's probably going to no, be no surprise to you because I'm so into, uh, I, I think, the way that the, the text is written. I think it's almost always purposeful that it's trying to communicate something, that there's a literary purpose. Um, you know, uh, lots of scholars look at this and see it as uh, just uh, different traditions being like uh, 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 melded together in this like unruly mess. But uh, I think just like uh, us, uh, they would have found that uh, uh, confusing and weird and would have probably tried to straighten it out. We actually have evidence that uh, uh, the Bible does that in places. Uh, so I think it's best not to think of this as just a, 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 a like mishmash of different sources, but as uh, fulfilling a literary need. Uh, there's a literary purpose behind it. And so I think that what this, this passage is doing is it's knowingly disconnecting us from time and space. Because it's doing something more than just telling a simple story about how the Israelites moved from one side of the river to the other. And if you'll notice, what are some of the central elements of this passage? Okay, there are priests, there's holiness, there's consecration, there's an Ark of the Covenant, there's a stone memorial. Now, if you think about what all these ideas kind of share in common, it's, there's this concern for holiness, for ritual. Uh, notice there's an emphasis on pattern throughout, obedience to procedure. And all of this is, for, it, it is uh, performed by the community and facilitated by the priest. So what I want to argue is that we, what we have illustrated in these chapters is not so much a story about, you know, what happened. But this is more liturgical ordered worship. Okay, this is liturgy. 
This is liturgy like you might find in like a good, uh, like uh, old fashioned, like Anglican or a Lutheran church, you know, cer- certainly not Southern Baptist like I grew up with. And in fact, we know that Gilgal was one of the oldest sites of worship for the Israelites. So my point is, and the reason I stress this is because what I want to get across is that what's going on in Joshua 3 and 4 transcends a simple historical account of what's happening here. Uh, And if you think about this account as liturgical, of like ritual worship, then I think it locks some key ideas for understanding this passage. So it is in worship that the worshiper experiences the presence of God. That's the point of worship. It's a holy time and space. It's It's where we move out of our normal rhythms of life and we do something different. Uh, we come uh, together as a group of people uh, who, uh, you know, maybe don't uh, see each other uh, a lot uh, during the week. Uh, this is this is a family that transcends our normal family boundaries, and we get together and we encounter the divine. Uh, it is a place that is neither heaven or earth, but it's a boundary between the two, and that should sound a lot like the role of the priest and the Ark of the Covenant in a passage. They stand in the middle of this boundary and they form this nexus point between heaven and earth. Uh, it's a point of overlap. In fact, uh, my kids and I were watching the, the Bible Project this morning and there was this great video about heaven and earth and they talk about these places where they overlap like a Venn diagram. Uh, and one of the places they do that is uh, at like tabernacles and temples, places where worship is. And I think that's what's going on here. However, in the Old Testament, one of the things about worship is it's much more than just a simple experience. Uh, in fact, um, here, here's a here's a kind of neat idea. Um, it was a way ritual and worship and, and all these going through these motions and ceremonies. The way it's portrayed in the Old Testament is a way to actually gain knowledge. Okay, it's a way to know, to learn, and, and the text tells us as much. Why were the stones set up in the river? So that when Israelite children ask about them, they will learn that it was because Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. So there's information, there's knowledge being communicated here. And and that's one of the things that I, I, I think we overlook. That's how worship in literature, liturgy, functioned in Israelite society. It was not just something you did to show that you were reverent. Worship was much more than that. And in fact, I want to make the claim that worship was a form of uh, what we would call in the philosophical business as uh, epistemology. Okay, so I know I just dropped the word epistemology, but um, but epistemology is just a fancy word for uh, the study of how we know what we know. So, for example, we might know something uh, maybe just by by sitting in our chair or a large rock and pondering things, uh, you know, by by building conclusions with premises using rules of logic. And that's a form of epistemology or knowing called rationalism. OK. Now, another way we might learn uh, uh, that we might know is we might use our senses, our sight and our touch. Or we might measure things. We might explore the world around us by scent or feel. Okay. And, and that's another form of epistemology that's got another fancy word, empiricism. 
Now, there's other ways we learn about things. Like we maybe we derive our knowledge from a trusted authority. Maybe if we were to uh, attend a class by, uh, you know, Dr. Lundberg and he were to wow us with his rhetorical skills, we would uh, we would accept uh, and know things and learn things uh, based on his authority as a as a uh, scholar. Uh, so that's another way we learn things. Uh, now, we may just accept a belief without any sort of reason or justification whatsoever. Uh, we call that dogmatism. Uh, another thing, we, we, may do, we may accept a uh, belief because it was revealed to us by divine revelation. So an even more special authority than uh, maybe uh, Dr. Lundberg or any other learned authority. This is actually, you know, the God who created the universe and is unknowing tells us. So the thing about liturgical worship is, and one of the things that's, uh, when you think about it as a way of knowing, um, it involves a lot of these different uh, epistemologies, a lot of these ideas. The priests are authorities who teach their communities based on the knowledge that they derived from divine revelation. As they lead worship, the community participates using various senses, okay? So, you know, there, there's incense involved frequently. There's all kinds of uh, sounds and sights and, and, and everything. Uh, your, whole, uh, your whole body, your whole sensory apparatus is involved in worship. Uh, you participate in worship through your body. You know, you stand up in various movements. Liturgical ritual worship is experiential. However, then as now, all of these practices would cause you to think about them. You would question them. You would think about their meaning. You would meditate. You know, your kids would ask, like, why are we doing this? Uh, all of these activities are performed in this space that is removed from normal time and normal place that is outside the pattern. So you can see kind of where I'm going at with all this. Um, now, here's what I think this passage wants us to teach and, and it, what this passage and also worship is meant to teach us. And it's not so much about what happens in chapter three and four, but it's about God. So if we look at this passage, we find that we are supposed to know three things about God. Okay, so there's three things we learn about God in this passage. So, so the first is in verse 310. It says that he is a living God. And then second, we read in verse 311 and 12 that he is Lord of all the earth. And then finally, third in verses 424 uh, it describes God as mighty. And what I want to submit to you is that that is what we're supposed to ultimately learn in these three, in these two chapters. So what I want us to do is kind of quickly just look at these three claims in a little more detail. On one way, they are, they are pretty self-explanatory, but um, I'm going to give a little more depth to uh, each of them. First, we are told that among the people is a living God. Now, the way that sentence is structured in Hebrew is a little more like this. It's more like God, the living one, uh, as in the living one is a title of God. 
Uh, now, when we study the way this phrase is used in the rest of the Old Testament, we find it's really not so much a statement about being, okay? So this isn't really so much about like an ontology of God or something like that. Yeah, I dropped the word ontology. So Annabeth, can, uh, you can direct all your questions about ontology to Annabeth. She'll, she'll tell you a lot of Heidegger and stuff like that. Uh, but I don't think that that's what's going on here. Uh, usually when we read about the living God, it's, remor- it's more referring to the fact that God has has the power to act. He's active in the world. Now, here's something you may not know, uh, unless you're like an ancient history nerd like me. Get this. The Egyptians also had arcs that they would carry into battle. So they had these ornate boxes, just like the, just like the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and they would actually carry them into battle. Uh, if, if I knew better how to use Zoom, I would like show you like three or four uh, hieroglyphic renderings of these. But, uh, you know, Google that on your own time. Uh, but they're really cool. Now, the difference is that this Ark that contains the presence of God actually does something. It stops the flow of the Jordan River. And so we, we learn from God uh, from these verses is that God is active. And when God acts, he achieves uh, results. Now in verse uh, 3, 11, and 13, we learn that the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of the living God and stops the flow of the Jordan River, is the, is the Lord of all the earth. Now, that's a fairly straightforward description implying that God is sovereign, that, that he rules over the land. But there's still some ambiguity uh, because earth uh, is not really a specific word. It, you know, does it refer just to the land of Canaan or does it refer to the world as a whole? And it's really hard to know because that Hebrew word uh, aretz, which we translate as earth or land, uh, means both of those things. In fact, if you go to Israel and you get the uh, major newspaper in Israel uh, is called ha-aretz, which means the land. And it's referring to the land of Israel, not the whole world. Um, So there's some ambiguity here, but... If we look at 4.24, so if we look toward the end of this passage in chapter 4, verses 24, we come to another statement about God. The hand of the Lord is mighty. And of course, hand is, uh, you know, a way to represent power. Uh, there's some fancy literary word for this. I think it's metonymy. But we find in several places where the Ark of the Covenant is connected with God's power. Uh, in 1 Samuel, the effects of the Ark of the Covenant are called the hand of God. Uh, so whereas God being mighty is pretty straightforward, the key is to what in. And verse 24 tells us this so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And notice here, peoples is plural, okay? Uh, that means the scope is not just the Israelites in Canaan, but all the peoples of the earth. Uh, the ambiguity has been cleared here. Uh, the point is that Yahweh is no tribal deity claiming sovereignty over just Canaan. It is only that's only a means to an end so that all the peoples of the earth may know what Israel knows about God. Now, notice that all of the knowledge of God occurs when the major boundary, the Jordan River, is disrupted by God's power. 
When the flow of the Jordan ceases, there is no separation now between Canaan and not Canaan. In other words, when the power of God moves into the boundary, as represented by the priests in the Ark of the Covenant, there is no longer an our side and a their side. There is no longer an us and them. God's presence and the exercise of his power has obliterated the boundary. When heaven and earth comes together, everything changes. Slaves become free. The unsettled become become settled. Outside and inside no longer have any meaning. So this story is much, much more than about going from one side of a body of water to another. And this story and the the knowledge, the, the information that's being communicated here culminates and finds its fulfillment at another event that recur, occurs at the Jordan River, namely the baptism of Christ. So again, this is another whole episode that centers around concepts of identity. So at the time of uh, John the Baptist, when we re, when we're looking at our passage, for many Israelites their painful exile to Babylon was over. And they were now dwelling in the land of promise that they were supposed to. And it was clear to them that they were God's people because they did things like keep the law. They observed the rituals. They bore all the markers of Israel. They kept kosher. They were circumcised. It was clear who was in and who was out. Those uncircumcised pork-eating Romans were out. and also their fellow countrymen in Israel who collaborated with the Romans. These people had the right ancestors. They were in the right place. They looked the right way, and they did the right things. All that was needed was for more people to get on board their plan, and then God would make everything right. So that's one school of thought. However, there were others who did not share that belief. They believed that there's something more was deeply wrong. And John the Baptist was one of those people. And he goes out in the wilderness and he baptizes people in the Jordan River. And he does so because he needs them to understand that all those markers of Jewish identity, like ancestry and circumcisions and food laws, were unimportant. What the people needed was to be removed from exile by repentance. And the identity of the people needed to be fundamentally changed. And this would happen by the symbolic crossing of the Jordan River at this new ritual of baptism. Just as the Hebrews had been changed from slaves to free at the Sea of Reeds, and the Israelites had been changed from settled to non-settled, John's audience needed to change from exiled to at home. Truly identifying as God's people then meant a complete reorientation of their lives to God, which is the word we call repentance. So if we look at our New Testament passage, we have Jesus coming to this historic boundary. And what is revealed in Jesus' crossing of the Jordan River is that Jesus is the presence of God. Like the priest in the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus forms this nexus point between heaven and earth. Jesus breaks the boundaries that separate us and them. And he obliterates the line between Israel and the rest of the world. He powerfully demonstrates that God is a living God and that God is active in this world for his people. 
that he is Lord over heaven and earth. And that once people experience the mighty hand of God at work, then all peoples will know God. And so the point of faith and what I think these chapters teach us is that our story is not just about moving from one side of the river to the other, or in our case, from one world to the other. Just as uh, that, that wasn't the point of Joshua 3 and 4. Like the ancient Israelites, we move out of normal time and space to this in-between where heaven and earth meet. That's what we do at worship. That's what we do at church. We move to this boundary that separates the us from them. We stand in this liminal space that is neither holy nor unholy, neither heaven nor earth. For this is the space where transformation occurs. That's what happens at worship. We are called to be what? The priesthood of believers. As revealers of the presence of God through worship and wonder, we reconcile God and humanity. It's our job to span in this space during worship and declare the knowledge of God as revealed in Jesus, who the spirit and presence has declared the son of God. In this great in-between, the church is a witness in ceremony, in ritual, in worship, and proclaims God fully revealed in Christ and Christ crucified. And the point of that is so that all the peoples of the earth may know God.